Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Marginal Comments, Bell Hooks, and Patricia Hill Collins. Over the past episodes, we've been throwing around the phrase black feminism pretty freely, but not all the thinkers who get this label have been so casual in embracing it. As we saw in the episode on the black women's literary renaissance, Maya Angelou seems to have had mixed feelings about the term feminist, while Alice Walker proposed womanist as an alternative. We also briefly mentioned Toni Morrison's 1971 piece in the New York Times, What the Black Woman Thinks About Women's Lib. It gives a blunt answer to the question of the title. In her view, black women at that time saw women's lib with distrust because it was white, therefore suspect. The terms feminism and women's lib were strongly associated with a movement led by white women, which failed to speak to the concerns of black women. Morrison quotes the poet Nikki Giovanni as remarking that, the women's liberation movement is basically a family quarrel between white women and white men. Morrison goes on, however, to imagine a version of women's lib, which genuinely is about controlling one's own destiny, is about female independence in economic, personal, and political ways. If this is the point of feminism for women of all races, then it seems fair to say that all the figures we've been looking at recently may be counted as feminists. Few have been as prominent for their pursuit of these goals as the poet, author, and teacher, Bell Hooks. Rather than saying she was a feminist, she preferred to say, I advocate feminism, in part because it might lead people to ask what exactly feminism means. She made clear what it meant to her at the end of her 1981 book, Ain't I a Woman, Black Women and Feminism. To be feminist in any authentic sense of the term, she writes, is to want for all people, female and male, liberation from sexist role patterns, domination, and oppression. First drafted while she was still an undergraduate student at Stanford University in the early 1970s, Ain't I a Woman announced Hooks as a formidable new voice in black feminism. Its publication was preceded by a book of poetry and followed by around 30 more books, which explore a wide range of themes including education, love, and Buddhism. We are going to focus on this early book, though, and on the follow-up work, Feminist Theory from Margin to Center, which appeared in 1984. In the first of these two volumes, Hooks explains that her position developed out of her own life experience, which showed her that race and sex were inseparable, that at the moment of my birth, two factors determined my destiny, my having been born black and my having been born female. Perhaps this would have been true no matter where in America Hooks had grown up, but it was certainly brought home to her during her childhood in Kentucky, near the Tennessee border. Born in 1952 to a family of modest means, her father was a postal worker and her mother a homemaker, Hooks was never going to share the perspective of the middle-class white women who led the feminist movement. For example, she once startled an interviewer by saying that she grew up shooting guns and still had a great affection for them, not something you usually hear from people on her side of American politics. In a story that somewhat mirrors that of Angela Davis, Hooks's talent took her from these humble beginnings to success in academia, attending Stanford for her BA in English, and then getting a PhD from the University of California, Santa Cruz in 1983. She wrote her dissertation on Toni Morrison, focusing on Morrison's first two novels, The Bluest Eye and Sula. Another resonance, in this case with our discussion of self-naming in Audre Lorde, is that Bell Hooks was not her birth name. She was at first Gloria Watkins, 
but for her 1978 poetry collection, she chose to rename herself after her grandmother, Belle Blair Hooks. She wrote the name without capital letters, a choice she explained by a desire to place emphasis on the substance of books, not who I am. But Hooks's work was very much shaped by who she was. Concerning her childhood and the way it shaped her as a thinker, she also writes, Living as we did, on the edge, we developed a particular way of seeing reality. We looked both from the outside in and from the inside out. We focused our attention on the center as well as on the margin. We understood both. This remark comes in the preface to Feminist Theory from Margin to Center and sheds some light on the title. As soon as the book gets going, it is clear how her biographical connection to the Black working class shaped her critique of white feminism, which she calls a bourgeois ideology. She takes aim at one of the most prominent authors of that tradition, Betty Friedan, and her well-known book, The Feminine Mystique. Friedan lamented the way that white middle-class women were stifled in their role of homemakers. Her demand, as Hooks frames it, was that white women should have equal access with white men to the professions. In response, Hooks points out that when Friedan was writing, one-third of American women were in the workforce, with quite a few of them doing jobs unpleasant enough that they would have left at the chance to be housewives. Not pulling her punches, Hooks calls Friedan's argument a case study of narcissism, insensitivity, sentimentality, and self-indulgence. Though we've seen versions of this critique in other black feminist authors, Hooks was especially fierce, and she knew it. For example, she claims that white feminists have been brainwashed by sexism and racism, and she reflects on her own choice to adopt such a polemical tone. Though I criticize aspects of feminist movement as we have known it so far, a critique which is sometimes harsh and unrelenting, I do so not in an attempt to diminish feminist struggle, but to enrich, to share in the work of making a liberatory ideology and a liberatory movement. A great believer in the effectiveness of frank confrontation, she tells a story about one such encounter. She told a light-skinned Latina woman that her experience of race would be fundamentally affected by the fact that she could pass as white. The woman was outraged, but some weeks later thanked Hooks, admitting that the conversation had forced her to realize her relatively privileged position. Hooks was clearly sincere in wanting solidarity with other feminists, while also clearly compelled to explain to them the terms on which solidarity was possible. She offered a powerful argument for the claim that privileged white feminists need to adapt themselves to appreciate the working class black woman's point of view, whereas white feminists seemed to see things the other way around, as when they invited people like Hooks to join their movement, implying that they owned it. Her argument goes like this. Sexism is only one of several forms of interlocking oppression in American society. Those black women who have to be in the workforce, whether they like it or not, enduring the grind of monotonous, physically demanding, and poorly paid jobs are in this situation because of both their race and their gender. The culprit is capitalist white patriarchy, so this must be the target of all feminist activism worthy of the name. It is hypocrisy to oppose only certain aspects of white patriarchy out of self-interest, as you might well do if you benefit from that system thanks to being white and middle class. Conversely, women who do not enjoy such benefits can hardly be expected to feel solidarity with feminists who are more selective in their opposition. The upshot is that much like Angela Davis, Hooks thinks that true feminism must go hand in hand with his searching critique of class divisions in capitalist society. She writes, Until women accept the need for redistribution of wealth and resources in the United States and work toward the achievement of that end, there will be no bonding between women that transcends class. And if that wasn't clear enough, feminist movement to end sexist oppression can be successful only if we are committed to revolution, 
to the establishment of a new social order. If so-called feminists like Betty Friedan weren't ready to go this far, that was hardly surprising since they were fully committed to the existing social order. Their aim was, indeed, to have jobs as fulfilling and well-renumerated as their husbands, and so to enter the mainstream of American capitalism. This is more or less the line of critique framed by Audre Lorde when she said around the same time that the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. If Hooks took a harsh and unrelenting approach, this was because she felt the need to shock these potential allies out of their complacency to drop the tools of the master and take up arms in a more genuine struggle. So, though there can be little doubt when reading these books from the early 1980s that Hooks was angry, she was not just out to vent that anger. As she says, expression of a hostility as an end in itself is a useless activity, but when it is the catalyst pushing us on to greater clarity and understanding, it serves a meaningful function. In these respects, Hooks's early work represents a culmination of trends in Black feminist thought of the 60s and 70s. But in other respects, she was a pioneering thinker who made points that have become familiar in more recent decades, in no small part because feminist discourse in these decades has been powerfully shaped by Hooks herself. For example, she preferred to refer to white supremacy rather than racism. This was in order to highlight that the problem of racism is a systemic one, not a matter of lamentable attitudes held by certain individuals, the sort of comforting explanation that places blame on a few bad apples. By drawing attention to what she saw as deep-seated racism and even sexism among feminists of all people, Hooks was making the point that even white progressives can be, and indeed usually are, part of an oppressive system. As we nowadays put it, these progressives need to learn to check their privilege, which presupposes getting them to realize just how privileged they are. Like other black feminists, Hooks also criticizes a series of male black leaders for their support of patriarchy, from figures like Martin Delaney in the 19th century to men who were active close to the time of her writing, like Amiri Baraka. And she's prepared to critique black women too, including black feminists. Separatist groups like the Combahee River Collective, in her view, simply accepted divisions between white and black feminists as inevitable, when what was needed was an impassioned campaign of critique and education to make white feminists understand their failure of empathy. She is derisive about the idea of retreating to all women's spaces as comfortable shelters against the storm of an oppressive society. Feminist movement to end sexist oppression actively engages participants in revolutionary struggle. Struggle is rarely safe or pleasurable. Again, what looks like progressive counter-cultural activism is really just self-serving behavior, or at best an ineffectual and self-deluding pretense to be challenging the status quo. Relentlessly pursuing the idea that the victims of oppression are often involved in its perpetuation, she is even prepared to state that enslaved Black people, both men and women, accepted patriarchal definitions of male-female sex roles. Ain't I a Woman, in fact, devotes extensive space to an overview of the history of Black women, both how they have been treated, badly, and how they have stood up against this, bravely. Even the title, of course, is a historical allusion to a famous speech by Sojourner Truth. Hooks also draws attention to the way that work by white historians, not unlike work by white feminists, is tacitly racist. Hooks relates how she consulted a book by a female historian called Women's Life and Work in the Southern Colonies and found that it was only about white women. She points out that she could never get away with publishing a book exclusively about black women and labeling it as a general study of women's life and work. Attention to history, and not least the celebration of predecessors like Truth, is another leitmotif of black feminism. 
we saw Angela Davis making this a mainstay of her own writing, for example. And the same goes for another important feminist author we'd like to discuss now, Patricia Hill Collins. Her book, Black Feminist Thought, Knowledge, Consciousness, and the Politics of Empowerment, which first appeared in 1990, begins and ends by quoting Maria Stewart. Remember her? She was way back in episode 44. And her question, how long shall the fair daughters of Africa be compelled to bury their minds and talents beneath a load of iron pots and kettles? Collins praises the efforts of others who have highlighted the achievements of earlier women thinkers, singling out Alice Walker's efforts to bring Zora Neale Hurston to wider attention and have her grave marked more suitably. With other cultural references, though, Collins takes us toward the end of the 20th century. She has written another book called From Black Power to Hip-Hop, and her discussions of hip-hop add that genre to our growing collection of musical traditions within Africana philosophy. In the second edition of Black Feminist Thought, published in 2000, she repeatedly laments the misogynist lyrics of some acts, notably Two Live Crew, but praises Sister Solja for the black feminist aspects of both her songwriting and her autobiography, No Disrespect. In the preface to the first edition of Black Feminist Thought, Collins announces, This is not a book about what black women think of white feminist ideas, or how black women's ideas compare with those of prominent white feminist theorists. She promises instead to place black women's experiences and ideas at the center of analysis. One way she does this is by examining how racism and sexism have continued in the wake of superficially successful rights struggles. It is no longer acceptable to be openly racist, so politicians and commentators instead speak in code, complaining about street crimes, unwed mothers, and the like. This fits with Collins's interest in popular art forms like hip-hop, She's concerned with the way prejudicial attitudes are communicated implicitly in visual images, song lyrics, and so on. She argues that Black women are classified in terms of certain cliched types. Alongside the welfare mother, there is the oversexed Jezebel, and conversely, the sexually non-threatening Mammy. Such stereotypes, which Collins influentially labeled controlling images, feed on a series of paired concepts. Man-woman, white-black, rich-poor, mother-whore with black women typically finding themselves placed on the negative side of each dichotomy. Collins wants to push back against this by, first of all, making black women more conscious of the way they are positioned in society. Or rather, since black women can hardly avoid being aware of this at some level, she wants to bring it to the forefront of their attention, a process she calls re-articulation. One of the things she values in the products of the black women's literary renaissance is that their fictional and autobiographical works often depicts such moments of re-articulation. Following suit, her goal is not quite to raise consciousness, as the movements of the 1960s might have put it, but to affirm and elaborate a consciousness that already exists. Collins coins another term of art when she states that Black women are subjected to a matrix of domination, which she defines as an overall social organization within which intersecting oppressions originate, develop, and are contained. This, of course, brings us back to the notion of intersectionality. By ticking several demographic boxes at the same time, a given person may be especially vulnerable to such a matrix of domination. Collins also explores the question of how one might be privileged in some respects and not in others. This is the situation of the middle-class white feminist, of course, but also applies even to the working-class black American woman who enjoys privileges of citizenship that poor people elsewhere in the world lack. So, if race, class, gender, sexuality, nationality, and so on divide us from one another, they also offer opportunities for solidarity, 
for building community across the usual boundaries. Her position is, in fact, diametrically opposed to the consequence often feared by critics of intersectionality, that perspectives will become so specific, so atomized, that there will be no possibility of dialogue anymore. To the contrary, Collins celebrates the idea of connectedness and exchange, and in fact mentions traditional African communitarianism as a model to imitate in this respect. We might also compare Collins's view to something we covered much more recently, indeed in the last episode, Audre Lorde's theory of difference. For Lorde, too, people must take account of and embrace what makes them distinct as a precondition for successfully relating to others. So, despite Collins' emphasis on community, for her, the individual point of view does matter, too, because it is from diverse perspectives that dialogue must begin. Collins proposes a black feminist epistemology which puts intersectional identity at its center. She is critical of what she calls positivist epistemological theories, which put a great premium on objectivity. It's typically thought that this is the sort of knowledge sought in science. Each scientist should set personal proclivities aside and seek to know the same things in the same way as all the other scientists do, for instance by replicating their experimental results. You might remember that W.E.B. Du Bois reflected on the idea that value judgments should be set aside in the sciences. We discussed this at length in our interview with Liam Kofi Bright. For Collins, at least when it comes to social and political life, positivism is the wrong epistemology. The lived experience of, say, a poor black woman will give her a kind of insight and credibility that others should respect. Such respect is required for true dialogue, but that condition is unfortunately often not met. Collins herself experienced that in academic settings, where the judges of acceptable scholarship tended to be white men who rejected her sort of approach out of hand. Collins's work is, as she said it would be, far less taken up with critique of white feminism than what we saw in Hooks. But there is a subtle new critique of mainstream feminism that arises out of what we've just been discussing. A feminist like Friedman would be, above all, interested in having the freedom to achieve personal fulfillment and would thus prioritize removing barriers to that kind of individual satisfaction. By contrast, Collins is interested in feminism as an effort to build community and find common purpose. In perceptive comments on the nature of black nationalism and Afrocentrism, Collins suggests that this was also the point of these movements. They functioned as a kind of civil religion, a way to forge bonds between black people. This is also why Collins takes such an internationalist outlook. She looks to the prospect of an intercontinental black women's consciousness movement that addresses the common concerns of women of African descent. The point is not that all people of African descent have everything in common, but that they all have something in common, and that this is enough to rationalize a common intellectual project. Her work thus incidentally gives us some insight into why it makes sense to explore, in a single and unified undertaking, the history of Africana philosophy.